Section seven of National Geographic Magazine, Volume One, Number Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Across Nicaragua with Transit and Machete by R. E. Perry. Part two. Much has been written about the climate of Nicaragua and its effect upon the inhabitants of more northerly countries when exposed to it. It would seem that the experience of the numerous expeditions sent out by the United States and the reports of the surgeons attached to those expeditions would have long since settled the matter. To those who cannot understand how there can be such a difference in climate between two localities so slightly removed as Panama and Nicaragua, and the former possessing a notoriously deadly climate, the experience of the recent surveying expedition must be conclusive. Only five members of that expedition had ever been in tropical climates before, and the rodmen and chainmen of the party were young men just out of college, who had never done a day's manual labor, nor slept on the ground at night in their lives. Arriving in Greytown during the rainy season, the first work that they encountered was the transporting of their supplies and camp equipage to the sites of the various camps. This had to be done by means of canoes along streams obstructed with logs and fallen trees. Some parties were a week in reaching their destination, wading and swimming by day, lifting and pushing their canoes along, and at night lying down on the ground to sleep. One party worked for six months in the swamps and lagoon region directly back of Greytown, and several other parties worked for an equal length of time in the equally disagreeable swamps of the valley of the San Francisco. Several of these officers are down there yet, as fresh as ever. In making tours of inspection of the different sections, I have repeatedly, for several days and nights in succession, passed the days traveling in the woods through swamps and rain, and the nights sleeping, as best I could, curled up under a blanket in a small canoe, while my men paddled from one camp to the next. In spite of all this exposure, not only were there no deaths in the expedition, but there was not a single case of serious illness, and the officers who have returned up to this time were in better health and weight than when they went away. Of course, the men had the best of food that money could obtain, and previous experience suggest, and the chiefs of all the parties were required to strictly enforce, certain sanitary regulations in regard to coffee in the morning, a thorough bath and a dose of spirits on returning from work, and mosquito bars and dry sleeping suits at night. Yet the climate must be held principally responsible for a sanitary result which I believe could not be excelled in any temperate zone city, with the same number of men doing the same arduous work under conditions of equal exposure. The forests everywhere abounding game, and every party which included in its personnel a good rifle-shot was sure of a constant supply of wild pig, turkey, quail, and grouse, varied by an occasional deer, all obtained in the ordinary work of reconnaissance and surveying. For the men's table there was abundance of monkey, iguana, and macaw, Parties in the lower valleys of the various streams had no trouble in adding two or three varieties of very toothsome fish to their bill of fare, though these fish were rarely caught with the hook, but usually shot, or knifed by an alert native, as they basked in the shadows. These parties also obtained occasionally a danta, taper, or a manatee. On the river it was possible to obtain a fine string of fish with hook and line, then there were the huge tarpon to be had for the spearing, and fish-pots sunk in suitable places were sure to yield a mess of fresh-water lobsters. Ducks were also occasionally shot. 
the forms of life are even more numerous in the vegetable than in the animal kingdom the effect of these wonderful forests is indescribable and though many writers have essayed a description i have yet to see one that does the subject justice only a simple enumeration of component parts will be attempted here first comes the grand body of the forest huge almendro havelin guachipilin cortes cedar cottonwood palo de lichi trees and others rising one hundred and fifty or two hundred feet into the scintillant sunshine the entire foliage of these trees is at the top and their great trunks reaching up for a hundred feet or more without a branch offer a wonderful variety of studies in types of column some rise straight and smooth and true others send out thin deep buttresses and others look like the muscle-knotted forearm of a titan with gnarled fingers gripping the ground in their wide grasp but whatever the form of the tree trunks may be the shallow soil upon the hills and the marshy soil in the lowlands has taught them that there is greater safety and stability in a broad foundation than in a deeply penetrating one and so almost without exception the tree roots spread out widely on or nearly the surface beneath the protecting shelter of these patriarchs as completely protected from scorching sun and rushing wind as if in a conservatory grow innumerable varieties of palms young trees destined to some day be giants themselves and others which never attain great size still lower down luxuriant smaller palms tree ferns and dense underbrush and countless vines these latter however are by no means confined to the underbrush many of them climb to the very tops of the tallest trees cling about their trunks and bind them to the other trees and to the ground with the toughest of ropes with one or two exceptions these vines are an unmitigated nuisance to them more than to anything else is due the impenetrableness of the tropical thicket of all sizes and all as tough as hemp lines they creep along the ground catching the traveller's feet in a mesh from which release is possible only by cutting they bind the underbrush together in a tough elastic mat which catches and holds on to every projection about the clothes jerking revolvers from belts and wrenching the rifle from the hand or hanging in trap-like loops from the trees catch one about the neck or constantly drag one's hat from the head the one exception noted above is the biuco de agua or water vine this vine which looks like an old worn manila rope is to be found hanging from or twined about almost every large tree upon elevated ground and to the hot and thirsty explorer it furnishes a most deliciously cool and clear draught seizing the vine in the left hand a stroke of the machete severs it a foot or two below the hand and another quick stroke severs it again above the hand immediately a stream of clear tasteless water issues from the lower end and may be caught in a dipper or all a native directly in the mouth a three-foot length of vine two inches in diameter will furnish at least a pint of water the order of cutting mentioned above must invariably be adhered to otherwise if the upper cut be made first the thirsty novice will find that he has in his hand only a piece of dry cork-like rope it is practically impossible to judge the age of the huge trees in these forests mighty with inherent strength stayed to the ground and to their fellows by the numerous vines sheltered and protected also by their fellows from the shock of storms their huge trunks have very little to do except support the direct weight of the tops and they rarely fall until they have reached the last stages of decay then some day the sudden impact of a ton or two of water dropped from some furious tropical shower 
or the vibrations from a hurrying troop of monkeys, or the spring of a tiger, is too much for one of the giant branches heavy with its load of vines and parasites, and it gives way, breaking the vines in every direction and splintering a huge strip from the main trunk. With its supports thus broken, and the whole weight of the remaining branches on one side, the weakened trunk sways for a moment, then bows to its fate. The remaining vines break with the resistless strain, and the old giant gathering velocity as he falls, and dragging with him everything in his reach, crashes to the earth with a roar which elicits cries of terror from bird and beast, and goes booming through the quivering forest like the report of a heavy cannon. A patch of blue sky overhead, and a pile of impenetrable debris below, mark for years the grave of the old hero. As regards the insect and reptile pests of the country, it has been my experience that both their numbers and capacity for torment have been greatly exaggerated. Mosquitoes, flies of various sizes, wasps and stinging ants exist, and the first in some places in large numbers. Yet to a person who has any of the woodsman's craft of taking care of himself, and whose blood is not abnormally sensitive to insect poisons, they present no terrors but slight annoyances. At our headquarters camp on San Francisco Island, we had no mosquitoes from sunrise to sunset, and even after sunset they were not especially numerous. At another camp only a few miles away, there were black flies only and no mosquitoes. At another, both, while at the camps up in the hills there were neither. It was only at camps in the wet lowlands and near swamps that they became an almost unendurable annoyance. Even here it was those who remained in camp that suffered most. Men out in the thick brush were but little annoyed by them, and when on their return to camp they had finished their dinner and gotten into their mosquito bars, they were out of their reach. As to snakes, the danger from them, even to a European, is practically nothing. Not a man of the several hundred that had been engaged in the various expeditions in that country has ever been bitten, and in hundreds of miles of tramping through the worst forests of the country, either entirely alone or if accompanied by natives, with them some distance in the rear, I have never fancied myself in danger. The poisonous snakes are invariably sluggish, and unless actually struck or stepped upon are apt to try to get out of the way if they make any move. The only snake that is at all aggressive, as far as my observations go, is a long, black, non-poisonous snake. This will sometimes advance upon the intruder with head raised a couple of feet from the ground, or, if coiled about a tree, will lash at him with its tail. The floral exhibit of these forests is apt to be disappointing to one whose ideas have been formed by a perusal of books. An occasional scarlet passion flower, now and then the fragrant cluster of the fleur de toro, a few insignificant though fragrant flowering shrubs, and in muddy sloughs near the streams, patches of wild calas, are about all that meet the eye of the non-botanical wanderer in the deep forest. There is not light enough for flowers beneath the dense canopy of trees, and they, like the smaller birds, seek the treetops and the banks of the rivers where sunlight and air are abundant. In the treetops the orchids and other flowering parasites run riot. Many of the trees are themselves flowering, and if one can look down upon the treetops of the valley in March or April, he sees the green expanse enlivened by blazing patches of crimson, yellow, purple, pink, and white. The river banks are the favorite home of the flowering vines, and there they form great curtains, swaying from the trees in bright patterns of yellow, pink, red, and white. The grassy banks and islands, 
and the shallow sand spits also bring forth innumerable varieties of aquatic plants. So much for the Atlantic slope of the country. On the west side, between the lake and the Pacific, the work is very different. There it is possible to ride mule-back to the top of a commanding hill, sit down, and make the reconnaissance sketch at leisure. The secondary reconnaissances may also be made mule-back, and everywhere the rolling country and the cleared and cultivated fields permit the engineer to see where he is going and how he is going. His surroundings are also different. He moves camp in an ox-cart instead of a canoe. His eyes, instead of being confined by the impenetrable veil of the tropical thicket, feast upon views of the distant mountains, the crisp waves of the lake, and the blue expanse of the Pacific. During the day he meets black-eyed and brown-limbed senoritas instead of wild hogs and turkeys, and at night as he turns in he hears not the scream of tigers, but the song of the lavendera's ecru daughters floating across the stream which supplies their wash-tubs and his camp. The first grand natural feature which arrests the attention in the most cursory examination of the map of Nicaragua is the Great Lake. This lake, with an area of some 3,000 square miles, and a watershed of about 8,000 square miles, is unique in the large proportion of its own area to that of its watershed. A result of this large proportion of water surface to drainage area, at once evident, is the very gradual changes of level of the lake, and their confinement within very narrow limits. The difference between the level of the lake at the close of an abnormally dry season and its level at the close of an abnormally wet season is not more than ten feet, and the usual annual fluctuation is about five feet. The next features that arrest attention are, first, the very narrow ribbon of land intervening between the western shore of the lake and the Pacific, and second, the entire absence of lateral tributaries of any size to the upper half of the San Juan River. The river is, in fact, as it was originally most aptly named, simply the desagnadero, or drain of the lake. The length of this river is 120 miles from the lake to the Caribbean Sea, and its total fall from 100 to 110 feet. Nature has separated the river into two nearly equal divisions, presenting distinct and opposite characteristics. From Lake Nicaragua to the mouth of the Rio San Carlos, a distance of 61 miles, in which occur several rapids, the total descent is fifty feet, quite irregularly distributed, however. The surface slopes of the river vary from as much as 83.38 inches per mile for a short distance at Castillo Rapids to only 0.9 inch per mile through the Agua Muerta, the deadwater below the Manchuca Rapids. The average width of the river through this upper section is 700 feet, the minimum 420. In some parts of the Agua Muerta, the depth varies from 50 to 75 feet. There are very few islands in this section of the river. The banks are covered with huge trees matted with vines, and throughout the lower half of the division, from Toro Rapids to the mouth of San Carlos, the river is confined between steep hills and mountains. As a result of the absence of considerable tributaries already noted, the fluctuations of this portion of the river conform closely to those of the lake, and consequently take place gradually and are limited in range. Below the Rio San Carlos, the San Juan changes its character entirely. Its average width is 1,250 feet. Its bottom is sandy, and there are numerous islands, and the slope of the river is almost uniformly one foot per mile. The discharge into this section of two large tributaries, the San Carlos and the Serapici, 
descending from the steep slopes of the costa rican volcanoes causes much more sudden and considerable fluctuations of level than in the upper river while the lower portion of the river and especially the delta section presents very interesting features yet the peculiar charm of the river is in the upper section and the exceptional advantages it offers for obtaining miles of slack water navigation this portion of the river with the lake and the narrow isthmus between it and the pacific forms a trio of natural advantages for the construction of a canal the importance of which would be difficult to overestimate about three miles below the mouth of the san carlos the cano machado enters the san juan on the north bank this stream about one hundred feet wide and from eight to ten feet deep is the last of the mountain or torrential tributaries of the san juan it can scarcely be said to have a valley but occupies the bed of a rugged ravine extending for several miles northerly and northwesterly up into the easterly flank of the cordillera every variety of igneous rock from light porous pumice to dense metallic green-black hypersthenodestite may be picked up in the bed of this stream agates are also common and there are occasional masses of jasper farther up frequent outcrops of trap in situ occur interspersed in some localities with numerous veins of agate twelve miles below the machado the san francisco enters the san juan this stream with its several tributaries drains a large swampy valley sprinkled with irregular hummocks and hills for several miles from the san juan it is a sluggish muddy stream between steep slippery banks higher up flowing over a gravelly and then a rocky bed it finally disappears in steep ravines filled with huge boulders the main san francisco comes from the northwest but a large tributary has its source to the eastward in a range of hills which separates the san francisco basin from the immediate caribbean watershed this range unlike the ones already noted is at heart an uninterrupted mass of homogeneous hypersthene andesite and with one exception nothing but fragments of trap or trap in situ is to be found in any of the streams descending from either its western or eastern slopes the one exception is the cañito maria a tributary of the san francisco entering it but little more than a mile from the san juan in the bed of this stream were abundant specimens of agates jasper and petrified woods of several varieties in a wonderfully good state of preservation this range of hills ends at the tombrecito bend of the san juan four miles below the mouth of san francisco and is the last easterly projecting spur from the mountain backbone of the interior between it and the coast there are however mountain masses of equal or greater elevation notably el gigante and the Saliso hills the former some fifteen hundred feet high but these are simply isolated mountain ganglia their innumerable radiating spurs speedily giving way to swamps or river valleys the streams that flow down the easterly slope of the Saliso hills are from their sources to the lowlands of almost idyllic beauty beginning as noisy little brooks tumbling over black rocks in a v-shaped ravine near the summit of the hills they rapidly gather volume and slide along in a polished channel of trap tumbling every now and then as sheets of white spray over vertical ledges forming here and there deep green pools and then after they have passed down among the foothills rippling in broad shallow reaches over sunlit beds of bright yellow gravel the water of these streams is clear and sparkling as that of an alpine stream and apparently almost as cool 
the insect pests of the tropics are unknown in the elevated portions of their valleys and i have slept more than once beside one of these streams several hundred feet above sea level without a mosquito bar while the delightful trades rustling through the trees above me brought the murmur of the caribbean surf miles away to mingle with that of the stream the soil of this range consists to a depth of ten to forty feet of clay of various grades and colors red prevailing in the valleys this clay is almost invariably of a very dense consistency and deep dark red in color from the foothills of the range to the coast is a low-level stretch of country a dozen miles wide interspersed with lagoons and swamps near the hills where the elevation of the ground will average about fifteen feet above sea level the soil is composed almost entirely of the before-mentioned red clay which occasionally assumes the form of hummocks within about six miles of the coast this stratum of clay gradually disappears under a layer of sand which is in turn covered by a vegetable mould to a depth of a few feet from this point to the sea the average elevation is barely five feet above the sea level and the sand and mould above mentioned are the only materials met a short distance from the ocean the vegetable earth covering disappears and only the sand is left extending to an unknown depth and reaching out into the sea west of lake nicaragua from the rio lejos to brito as we leave the lake shore the ground rises almost imperceptibly to the divide among cleared and gently undulating fields then we drop into the sinuous gorge of the rio grande only to emerge a few miles farther on into the upper end of the rio grande and tola basin to the right the tola valley stretches to the northward and all around high and wooded hills encircle the valleys except directly in front where a narrow gateway in the coast hills opens to the pacific in the bottom of this valley there are a few farms and through it wander devious roads beyond the narrow gateway in the hills less than three miles of level swampy salinas reach to the surf of the pacific the views from the hills which flank the gateway of the rio grande at lafour are wonderfully attractive i well remember one camp on the hillside from which in one direction the eye takes in the fertile valley of the tola and the rio grande backed by the rolling hills of the divide and over them the symmetrical peak of ometepe its base washed by the waves of the great lake in the other direction the pacific lies apparently but a stone's throw below the little port of brito at once very feet this same camp inspired one young engineer and enthusiast to express himself something as follows what if in this camp we should like rip van winkle sleep for ten years and then awakening look about us we are still at brito but instead of being in the wilderness we look down upon a thriving city in the harbor are ships from all ports of the world ships from san francisco bound for new york about to pass through the canal and shorten their journey by ten thousand miles ships from valparaiso headed for new york which will take the short cut and save five thousand miles and the dread storms of cape horn at many a masthead floats the british flag and vessels from liverpool with their bows turned toward san francisco have shortened their journey by seven thousand miles we go aboard one of the many steamers flying the stars and stripes and start eastward all along the line the face of the country has changed the fertile shores of the tola basin are occupied by cacao plantations fields have replaced forests villages have grown to towns and factories driven by the exhaustless water-power furnished by the canal have sprung up on every available site along the shore of the lake are immense dry docks 
and vessels are resting in this huge freshwater harbour before setting out again on the long voyages. The broad bosom of the noble San Juan is quivering with the strokes of tireless propellers. The roar of the great dam at Ochoa is heard for a moment, and then the eastern section of the canal is entered. Here the country is scarcely recognizable, so greatly has it changed. Wilderness and marsh have disappeared, and only great fields of plantains and bananas, and dark green orange groves are to be seen. A day from Brito, and the steamer's bow is rising to the long blue swell of the Caribbean at Greytown. Well is this picture calculated to excite enthusiasm, for it means the dream of centuries realized, the cry of commerce answered, and our imperial orient, an occident-facing republic, resting content with coasts united from Eastport to the Strait of Fuca. End of section 7 End of National Geographic Magazine, Volume 1, Number 4